Um, You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. So we have this, just in our minds, I want us to realize that, that what God has accomplished now in our past, but what he accomplished certainly in Christ, on the cross, through Christ's ministry here on earth, was declared beforehand. Because God doesn't just plan the ends, he, in order to actually accomplish the ends, he has to also plan the means by which those purposes are accomplished. And I love that phrase in there, um, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a, from a far country. Uh, the man who he calls ultimately is Christ himself. We often think of David, and what's the one attribute of David, the, the, the positive attribute of David that we all think of? He's a man after what? God's own heart, which clearly, if, looking at his life, does not mean David is a man who did everything the way God wanted him to, because they had some sort of mind meld going on there between their hearts. No, it was a man after the heart of God. It was a man that God had called because he had a purpose for him to fulfill. He was, he was God's choice. He was the man after which God's heart was set. The ultimate man after whom God's heart is set is actually Christ himself. So as we look over to Psalm 69, I just want to point some things out. And I think we better build a foundation here of the context of this psalm. Again, this is something that would have been sung or chanted in a worship setting. Um, We don't have a clear... Uh, definition of the Shoshanim, I guess that's how you'd say that, uh, at the beginning in the introduction of Psalm 69, but those are inspired words. We do count that as part of the psalm itself. Um, and then it launches into the description of, of this person who's going through this incredible pain and suffering in spite of their innocence because of the people around them who then calls out to God to do something about it. And If you look in your study Bible and read through the notes at the bottom, which I expect you to do while I'm teaching, I would be doing it, because it helps helps check on, hey, am I being taught error or something. Um, Understand, I'm gonna tell you things that that might not necessarily agree with that. And here's why. The New Testament authors, as I've said, often turn back to the Old Testament to try and give us a... a, um, a larger idea than just the one little verse they're quoting. And so when they tend to quote an Old Testament verse, you should probably look at that whole passage and see how it applies to the situation going on. So in Psalm 69, we have verse 4 quoted in John 15.25 about Christ. In verse 9, we have John 2.17 Jesus cleaning the, cleansing the temple in Romans 15, 3, being quoted about Christ. 
And then in verse 21, that's in Matthew, uh, Matthew 27, 34. And that's the picture of what happened to Christ on the cross. Uh, then in verse 22, you have Romans 11, 9, and 10, referring to, to Christ's role. And then in verse 25, you have Acts what is that? Acts one twenty. I think actually talking about the, the betrayal of Judas himself. And again, you can come to this one verse and say, well, that's an interesting verse for them to have quoted there if you look at that passage. But then when you open up this whole, the whole psalm itself and apply it to what took place there in Acts 1, you realize that they weren't just talking about this one verse. So you're left with a conundrum when you're interpreting scripture. You can take this and say, well, each one of these verses jumps around about who it's talking about. Or you can say that the author of Psalm 69, David, actually was referring to one person. And the challenge of that, because what I've presented so far, the New Testament writers, I believe, make that case. The challenge of that is you're going to run into verse 5. And 69.5 says, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. So the challenge that you're going to have as we go through and read this psalm is, okay, if this context is about Christ, why is he saying that God knows his follies or his sins or his wrongs or where he has transgressed? And I would make the argument, and I'm not the only one who makes this argument, there are other scholars that would make this argument, that what is being argued there is, I am innocent, verse 4, because if I had any guilt, God, you would know it. I am presenting it to you. I am having you be the ultimate judge because you know when people sin and you know when they fall short and you can actually know my folly and my wrongs. And therefore, I come to you. In fact, we're going to see the only way that this individual can ask for what he asks for in the last half of the chapter is if he's innocent in the first half of the chapter. Because none of us get to pray for the things that this person is going to pray for. None of us gets to pray for the damnation and the utter destruction of our enemies, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And we're going to see that take place in this chapter. So I don't see any way for this chapter to refer to anyone outside of Christ himself, aside from verse 5. And verse 5, I believe, is a phrase to say that, Lord, you are the one who judges based on wrongdoing. You know, if I had wrong in my heart, what it would be, and you'd judge me for it. But there's so many ways in which that, that is debunked where that can't actually mean what it says on its face. But I don't fault somebody who says, well, Scripture speaks plainly, and that seems to more plainly say that this person has some sort of sin or folly or wrongdoing in their heart. But sometimes you have to go deeper and, and do remember Unless you're a KJV-only person, this was not written in English to start with. This, was, this is 
written in another language, translated into a second language and translated to us generally. And then we go back to the original language and try and, and make it fit and try and figure out exactly what it says. So we're removed, plus we're removed culturally from that. But I think it makes good sense. And again, I, uh, um, people are divided on that. At the, if you're going to say it's not Christ in verse five, the rest of it has to be about him. And therefore, I'm more comfortable with siding with those who say that even verse five is, is a declaration of innocence before a God who knows all. <clears throat> that being said, uh, we'll start up in verse one. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I've sunk deep in the mire and there's no foothold. I've come into the deep waters and the flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. That's going to be a front end of a bracket to uh, verses 14 and 15. It, it, it gets repeated. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. So 1 through 15, I would say, are, are all one section where it's talking specifically about the situation that this person is in. And certainly we will all have had situations where we feel this, but certainly I don't, I'd be hard pressed to believe to the extent where this person is feeling it. All hope is gone and all they have to, to turn to is God himself. With the idea of this being our savior and understanding what, what it was like for him, it brings to mind things like when he is, in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what he faces, even, even his own close friends are falling asleep and don't pay attention to what's about to happen, even though he's been trying to tell them. The loneliness, the, the, the isolation that Christ had here on earth as a human being is starkly portrayed here in Psalm 69. Verse four, then those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to repay. Clearly a statement of innocence in this situation. Whatever has gotten him into this state where he's in the water and he can't even find place for his feet to rest under the water. And what is there is slippery. It's a mire. Everything is overflowing him. There's, it's like being caught in a torrent is because there are people around him who hate him without cause. It seems like everyone around him hates him without cause and desire his destruction, demanding that he repay for something he never did. And again, innocent person here, certainly in this situation, those who would argue that this is a psalm about David and it makes allusions to who Christ was, would be hard-pressed to find a situation where David himself was totally innocent, as this person is. So terrible situation brought about by those who hate him when he has done nothing wrong. And it's a hatred even beyond just despise of the person, but it's, it's despise of the person and wanting them to pay for something they didn't do. <clears throat> 
And then we have verse five, this plead for, for God to be the one to step in and judge in this situation. Well, God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from me. You are the one on who, for whom the whole book of my life is laid open. You can look at everything here and see that in this situation, there is nothing I have done wrong. I'm clearly the innocent one here. My appeal to you is valid because of that. So much so, Lord, that understand, verse 6, may those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. We'll pause there. For you and I to say that, when we say something, like, oh Lord, I pray that your name isn't sullied by my actions, it's because our actions don't necessarily represent what God would have them represent, that we do a poor job of representing God. Through our sin, we actually bring shame to the name of Christ. But this is a prayer that, that those who wait for God would not be ashamed through me. Why? In verse 7, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. It's because of his standing for the Lord that he has borne reproach and he has been dishonored. And his prayer here is that even though I am totally innocent, Lord, and I have represented your name well, because of the position I am now in, brought about by these fools that are accusing me wrongfully, some might actually be ashamed of you yourself, God. And it's a, it's a magnificent plea to God for the name of God. Lord, don't allow your name to be sullied and those who follow you to be ashamed because of what's happening to me. Where I have stood for you and been a reproach, some might say that that's bringing dishonor to you. Don't let that happen, Lord. In fact, his position is so bad and verse 8 isn't, isn't a direct quote from the New Testament, but it's referred to in the New Testament. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. And we know that during his ministry before the cross, the brothers of Christ, Mary's other sons, thought he was crazy and didn't have a respect for his ministry. So again, we have this prophetic word of God declaring what came before for what was about to happen later. We have this prophetic word that shows us that this is speaking of Christ himself. Get one more clue of who we're dealing with here. Ultimately, Lord, don't, don't let dishonor come on you because of the dishonor that has been brought on me. Why has this dishonor come to me? For the zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And we saw this zeal for the house consuming Christ ultimately represented in his cleansing of the, first, of the temple at the beginning of his ministry. It's kind of interesting because now we see this, we're going to see brackets of Christ's ministry represented here in the psalm. We're going to see this is the beginning. It's going to say in John 2 that the disciples remembered later, oh yeah, zeal for the house was going to consume 
The character back in Psalm 69, that's what drove him to cleanse that temple. So the, the disciples in John 2 are saying, yeah, Psalm 69 is about Jesus. The zeal for your house is consuming. Interestingly enough, it's funny that David's writing this. What's the house of God during David's day? It's a tent, right? There's no temple. And the, the, the disciples looking back are saying, that's Christ cleansing the temple. But you can see how that set off the Pharisees. He went directly after them, after their treatment of God in his holy house, after their treatment of the people, fleecing them by charging them outrageous prices for what they required to bring a sacrifice to God. Christ sees that and immediately he reacts to it knowing full well the wrath that would be brought upon him. He did nothing wrong, and yet they're asking him to repay. They're treating him as the criminal in the situation. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. What a wonderful thing to be able to say that the reason people don't like me is because they don't like God. Now, some of us claim that after we're obnoxious. That's not what this says. This doesn't say, hey, if you go and you're really obnoxious to somebody, and you don't speak to them graciously the word of truth, about Christ, that's okay because they're reproaching God. So, yay, you're a winner. That's not what this is saying. Christ himself remembered the innocent one. And you can just look at the way he shared with the lost and approached them. Now, those, those people in Israel who were leading them astray, leading Israel astray, the religious leaders of Israel, he has a different word here for them. We're going to get to that. Verse 10, when I... When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. So we see Christ here as during his ministry, situations where he goes off to pray or when he's calling out to the Father before the cross, weeping in his soul, fasting, wearing sackcloth. Even then... Those who were against him in his earthly ministry still came after him. Even though he appeared to be repentant, even though he appeared to be as humble as he could be, even as he is seeking God, it gave him even more reason to attack him. He became a byword to him. So that, again, from the people sitting at the gate, or those who sit at the gate talk to me, and those, and I am the song of the drunkard. So all, all levels of society from the people who judge in the city gates to the people who drink in the bars. Bars. Well, maybe they did. Uh, Everybody in society is making fun of him. Everyone in society is talking bad about him to the point where they're even writing songs to bring him shame. Even when he has completely humbled himself, I did not, I didn't do what you said I did, I'm, but I will humble myself. They still go after him. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth or answer me with salvation. Really powerful words there. Um, that phrase there, at an acceptable time. Well, when is an acceptable time? 
Through scripture, we see that phrase. Probably the, the most clear one that we see is uh, when, when the fullness of time had come, Christ was born. Mary had a son. And very often we say, well, that fullness of time is nine months, right? That's when time's full, time to have a baby. But really that's referring to when God's plan was completed to that point where Christ would now come, Christ was born. The acceptable time isn't a time that we decide on, and I don't think it's saying that Christ here is praying at a, at a time when, okay, this is the right time where I need to pray. I think it's, it's God himself bringing about prayer in the life of his son at the acceptable time. It's the Lord who controls the time. And that is one of the things that, uh, that Christ did bring himself and humbled himself when he became man. He became He became located within this web of time and and experience and different occasions and circumstances. And at an acceptable time, he turned to God in prayer. And his prayer is one about the greatness of God, his loving kindness, and his salvation. Now what what this prayer isn't, which if this was David... You expect it to be, there would be something in there praying for the mercy of God. Oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But this is no, oh God, you are great in your loving kindness. Answer me with your salvation. Christ, you're praying to be saved. And again, we see that what's he wanting to be saved from the situation that he's in? The mire, the deep waters, the flood of waters flowing over him. The deep and the pit. Oh, Lord, save me from these things. Christ was human. He didn't just face the the cross as God himself, which he did, but he also faced it as a man, having the pains and the feelings that we have, the thoughts that we have, the desire to avoid things that are painful and hard. And he makes that clear in his prayer. We're given this glimpse into the heart of our Savior. It's just astounding that we get to actually see that. That God has given us Psalm 69. Just as Psalm 22 showed us that. Verse 16 then. The prayer is made, the supplication is made, and now we turn, answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. And do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly, O draw near to the soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All of my adversaries are before you. So he restates the situation that he's in and those who are against him, bringing to mind those who have brought this false accusation. And remember, the reproach and the shame and the dishonor are not because of behaviors he has done. He made that clear. The the reproach and the dishonor he faces in verse 7 is because of his relationship with God. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. It's because of what he has done in representing God that he faces the shame and, and dishonor. And he's saying, God, this isn't, hey, look how bad my life is. It's, hey, they did it. They are causing me reproach and dishonor because of your name, because they are after you. 
Here they are. They're right before you now. Let's deal with them. This is where the innocence has to be present in this in this passage, the innocence of the person is now calling on God to actually turn on the adversaries. They are all before you, holy judge, the one who can actually separate the wheat from the chaff, the goat from the sheep, the one who actually can bring about judgment, the one who can bring vengeance. Reproach has broken my heart. I am so sick. I look for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And we're given this picture of, again, Christ himself, and you think of his disciples scattering as soon as he was arrested, hiding. Think of the only people that looked on with any sympathy were the women at the cross. John eventually finds himself there as well. But here he is hanging on the cross, no one to comfort him, No one to offer sympathy, instead scorn. Instead he's humiliated, instead he's stripped naked and he has a a mocking title nailed above his head, King of the Jews. They gave me gall for my food or poison or bitter, bitter herb for my food and for, for thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Again, a picture of what takes place on the cross in Matthew 27. He's, he's making an assault on those who have treated him so poorly. He's, he's presenting a case against them. He's presenting a case to God to say, God, this is what I would like to have done to those people who were my adversaries here on earth. And then it gets described. May their table before them become a snare. Their table, their, 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 not just their their sustenance and uh, their food for the day, but actually uh, kind of more like their, their place where they recline, where they, their authority is shown. They're at the table. May actually what they enjoy in their position of power in their intimate inner room become a snare to them. And when they're in peace, may it become a trap. When they think they've accomplished greatness, when they think they've finally done away with me, Lord, may it actually become the thing that traps them. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. A great phrase. What a terrible curse to curse somebody with. Lord, make their loins shake. And I, I don't know if that's diarrhea or... <laughs> If that's just quivering in the gut, I don't know, but it sounds terrible and I'm glad he didn't pray that against me. But we see the calling of damnation upon these people, upon his adversaries. To the point where they are not able to actually see what they have done. The high priest prays that maybe it's better for all of Israel if one man were to die. He said that out loud. And it's like, yeah, that's why he's here. You got it. And the Holy Spirit uh, is the one who moved him to speak in such a way, but he had no idea what he was saying. Their eyes grew dim so they cannot see. The other thing to bear in mind here is this is Christ himself praying this. How many of Christ's prayers come true? Does God answer the prayers of Jesus? Say yes, 
absolutely he does. So this is Jesus Christ declaring the judgment, but submitting himself to the Father and allowing God himself to bring that about. This is Christ who we were, we were joking, at least and I were joking, during the sermon that talk, last week it talked about Jesus putting on his magnificent robe and appearing and the horror that his appearance in that magnificent garb brought about all of the earth. And, and it's kind of, the, the parts that's funny is when he must, you know, turn to one of his angels and say, I want the robe. They're like, which one? I want the magnificent one. And they're like, whoa, what's going to happen now? Because this is Christ himself, the ruler of all the universe, who submits himself to the Father and says, Lord, you're the judge. This is what I want done. Knowing full well, he himself could declare it. Pour out your indignation on them and make your burning anger overtake them. We don't get to pray those things because we are not without sin, because we are not the innocent one. Now, the other thing that will hopefully come to your mind is when Jesus, one of the things he says on the cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you want to be careful that you don't just apply that to the whole situation from the time he's arrested to the time he's dead in the ground. Because clearly here, he's calling on judgment on some of the actors in that. Those who did know what they did. Those who actually understood, I am sending an innocent man to die are not the one who Jesus prays mercy on. I think he prays mercy on the man who got up that morning and told his wife, I'm gonna, uh, what are you doing today? Oh, we've gotta do some more crucifixions today. And he's just a Roman soldier and that's what he does. And he goes and he crucifies the Lord of all the earth. And I think Christ in all his grace and mercy said, Father, forgive those men. They don't know what they're doing. There were men that did know what they're doing. And I think that's why he puts the clarity in there. Because some of the men who put Christ on the cross will have God himself pouring out his indignation on them and his burning anger is going to overtake them. Don't fool yourself into believing because God shows mercy over, over thousands of years to millions of people that for some reason he will overlook your sin. And if you know better, if you sit here and you hear the gospel week after week after week, and you tell the Lord, no, not for me. I have other things. You don't get to claim you didn't know what you were doing. There's an indignation that will be poured out on you, and there will be burning anger that will overtake you. May their camp be desolate. May none dwell in their tents. It's an attack on, on not only their, their, the land that they inherit or the, the sphere of influence they have, but also on their families themselves. May you have no children, and what children you do have, may they all be scattered. For they have persecuted whom you, who, him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. And we covered this a little bit in Job, but Job's friends came and attacked Job himself when it was God that brought about the whole situation, and God was not happy with them for it. Where instead they should have come to Job, and, and Job even tells them that, you know, I was down and you guys came and attacked me. 
That's not how you're supposed to react when your friends are under the afflicting hand of God is to pour on it like you, oh, God's judging you so I can judge you too. No, but that's what these men did. Christ himself was smitten by God. You yourself have smitten. The one whom you yourself have smitten and the one you have wounded. Jesus himself was injured, smitten. He went through that misery at the hand of God, through the plan of God. And you'll notice that Christ himself doesn't attack God for having, being part of that plan. He understood God's role in this. He understood they meant it for evil, you meant it for good. The story of Joseph stands for that, or shows that. So they have persecuted him who you yourself have smitten, rather than offering him condolence, rather than coming alongside him. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. And he seems to bring in even beyond himself. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Yeah, if the sentence is X, double it. If they're committing these sins, hand them over to that and let them commit even more. And may they not come into your righteousness. Lord, don't let them have an understanding. That's a tough phrase to read there. It's tough for a five-point Calvinist to read that and say, wait a second. All of us should say, that should make you afraid. Especially if you're here hearing the, the word of God, hearing of what Christ went through on our behalf. The idea there is that you need to throw yourself at the mercy of God himself because he's the one that allows you to come into his righteousness and to understand and have your eyes open. May they be blotted out from the book of life and may they not be recorded with the righteous. This is, a, this is, this is not a little curse that Christ is, is praying. Or if you believe it's David, that David is praying. But what a horrific thing for just a man to be praying. Blotted out that you'd never actually know salvation, that, that you would have no opportunity for the sins that you have had. You have blasphemed against the Son as He is declared by the Holy Spirit. You're done. but I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. <clears throat> he brings us back to what's going on. After that, that prayer for the destruction and damnation of those who have, who have killed an innocent man and not just an innocent in that situation, but an innocent for all time, they're caring about the work of God He turns back to his situation and he remembers, or it's, it's all brought back into focus into the moment. I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation of God set me securely on high. There's a goal here, Lord. I understand I have to walk through this. I understand that my end is near. I'm going to go through death. Lord, even though that happens, I understand it's going to happen. May your salvation, O oh God, set me securely on high. You're the one who's smiting me. You're the one under whose hand I have been wounded. 
But you're also the one, Lord, that I'm counting on to lift me up and set me on high. Because I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. At the end of this, Lord, that you have, you have given me to walk through, I will praise your name. And understand again, I think that's why 29 starts with, I am affected, afflicted and in pain, is the understanding that while I am in the pain, I'm looking forward to the day when you will set me on high and, and when that happens, I'm gonna praise you. Oh, and, and two verses before that, three verses before that, I understand you're the one causing the pain and how, how well we can actually apply that even in our sin when Christ when God brings about difficulties in our life and pain and suffering and health issues and family issues and, and my kids are out of control and, and you name it, I, I struggle with this sin, that sin, Lord, and I'm looking forward to the day when, when you finally save me for good, when I can actually praise your name on high. And I'll praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And it'll please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. Better than the best of the best sacrifices that I can bring, Lord. My praise to you for what you had me walk through would be better than even those things. And then he, he talked about, he, he kind of expanded those who are, are uh, those whom you have wounded, and he expands it. The humble have seen it and are glad. So now, now more people are being involved here. All the humble, all the people who humble themselves under the afflicting hand of God will see what happened to Christ, know that God is in their sufferings, and they will be glad, and they will see... Uh, they who seek God, their hearts will be revived there in verse 32. When you're in doubt about what's going on and whether or not you're going to make it through, look at Christ and his focus on not only completing what God had set before him, that God was, was the, 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 the pain that he was going through as given to him by God to go through, the humility that you have to have when you're in those situations. Don't make those, let those situations uh, build up your pride. This should not happen to me. I'm innocent in this. I shouldn't have to do this. This is wrong. Instead, humble yourself. Those who humble have seen it and are glad when they look at the cross. Those who seek God, let your hearts revive. Your heart will be revived when you look at the cross. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Understand it's not the end. For Christ, it wasn't the end on the cross. He didn't just die and lay in a tomb. The Lord did raise him up, set him on high, and salvation was brought. Because the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. There are people who serve God, who preach the gospel, who are killed on account of their faith and, and their expression of that faith in Christ alone. God does not ignore their cries. Certainly, in this life, it doesn't go well. But eventually, they get to the point where they are with God, singing His praises and magnifying Him. In fact, let all of heaven and earth praise Him. The seas and everything that moves in them, this call of creation 
Everything God has made needs to praise God. The response to Christ on the cross suffering at the hand of God and the hand of evil men, the judgment of those evil men, and the glorification of Christ himself should cause all of heaven and earth to praise God and the seas and everything that moves in him. Guess what? We are part of creation. Our response should be looking at what takes place on the cross should cause us to praise God. Because God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it and those who love his name will dwell in it. And again, it's great because it's tough to study Christ and the effects of the cross and his eventual glory and not also look at God setting all things right. And part of setting all things right is that creation itself will be set right, that God will establish himself in Jerusalem and Zion, that the nation, Judah, another name for the nation of Israel, will have its cities built. The people of Israel will dwell in it. And all the descendants of his servants are going to inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell in it. Don't don't miss the fact, so many times we don't like to talk about the future of what's going to happen in this world because it's it's can be confusing and and it can cause arguments and things but just just hang your hat if you're going to do anything hang your hat on the on what is very clear and this whole accomplishment of Christ on the cross and God turning in that into an opportunity to glorify Christ and bring himself praise to magnify himself the end here as it is throughout the Old Testament, is this kingdom promise that the whole of the earth, but specifically Zion and Judah and the people of Israel will come and praise the Lord. And certainly we will get to enjoy that as well. And you can read through Romans if you want to know what, our, what part ours our take in that is, and, and we'll cover that when we go through it in Romans. And we're seeing that in Revelation as well. What, what is our part in that, in the restoration of Jerusalem? God is still punishing Jerusalem for what their previous, for what their actions and the rejections of Christ are, and he's making them jealous through his love of the people who aren't a people, which is us, the Gentiles. What a beautiful thing. But that future restoration is tied to the cross and Christ's suffering because he's the innocent man who suffered at the hands of the guilty, of the evil. He's able to announce condemnation on them. He's able to rightly praise God for the situation he was put through and give God thanksgiving for it, encouraging the rest of us to be humbled by it. And ultimately, all of the earth will be set right by it. Why is it that God is, is, how is it that God reconciles all things to himself? Colossians. It's through Christ, and that's what this is saying. Everything is going to be reconciled. The, the leaders of Israel will actually have good re- leaders in Israel. Israel that gets annihilated in 70 AD will be set right. Everything will be set right because of who Jesus Christ is. It's all actually about him. He's the one who reconciles all things to himself. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you that we're able to see the greatness and glory of Christ even in this 
Old Testament passage, Lord, even in this song that you gave them to sing, Lord, and I just pray that we would recognize what Christ did for us, Lord. If anyone is here who doesn't know you and doesn't want you, who has rejected you, I pray that, Lord, it would be a temporary hardening of their heart, Lord, that you would bring about in their life an understanding. You would open their eyes to see Christ. And in doing so, they'll see their sin and they'll desire to sin no more. That they'll desire to be freed from that. That they would have a heart of humility and repentance, Lord. For no other reason than they see that in the end, Christ wins. He was great. That tomb is empty, Lord, because of your answering the prayer that was made long before he was even born as a man, Lord. Looking forward to his life and his eventual glory. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would be part of that. That everyone who hears your voice would say, this is the day that the Lord saved me. We pray these things in your son's name because he is the only innocent one. He is the one who submitted himself to the Father. He is the one, the first fruit that was raised in a glorified body that we too might look forward to that. Amen.